Amen. Amen. Children, you are dismissed. It looks like most of are gone already. Praise the Lord, God. If you will, open your copy of the scriptures to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is page 809 if you're using the Pew Bible. Thank you. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. I'll ask you if you haven't yet uh, placed your cell phones on vibrate. That would be a, a, a great service to our service. Praise the Lord God. You know, as a, young, as a young lad, somewhere between, I don't know, six and eight, I always had this uh, feeling at certain times that someone was watching me, that someone was, was, was just, just, you know, um, uh, there when it was totally impossible for anybody to actually be there. Right? Has anybody else ever had that feeling, or am I alone in that? Okay, I'm mostly alone. Okay, that's all right. So, so it's not as if it's not as if I was raised in a in a, in a church. Um, I, I didn't. I, I wasn't raised in a church. Like like if I was raised in a church and I, I heard somebody with a big booming voice from the pulpit say, "God is watching you," then I would have reason to feel like that. But I didn't. And so at certain times in my mischievous young age if I wanted a, a piece of pie when I shouldn't have gotten an extra pie or a, or a cookie, you know, and, and my parents are in the room and my sister's in her room, I would pause. I would pause, you know, and it doesn't mean I didn't take the cookie often, but it's like, how, why am I feeling like this, right? And so as I grew, as I, as I, I grew in my more... Uh, Evil ways, I'll just say, call it for what it is. My desire for things much worse than cookies grew. And as I grew in my wickedness, it created more damage to my, my, my heart and my soul and in, in my mind. Um, thank God for the word of Jesus. Because in time, in time, God would teach me as he teaches all of us through his diagnosis that we have a heart problem. Our hearts are deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We may think we know our hearts. We may think we know ourselves, but if we're honest, if we take a moment to reflect on our lives, there are choices we made that we thought we would never make. God knew. In the crevices of our heart, it was always there. But not only did God tell us that our hearts are deceitful above all else and desperately wicked and you can't know it, but he also provided the remedy. He also told us how to receive a new heart, a pure heart. Praise God for his word. As we continue our slow journey through the gospel of Matthew, we've come upon the place in the Beatitude where we See the words from Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. Right? And, and, and the thing about it is this beatitude is foundational 
to every other beatitude, right? If, if we weren't pure in heart through the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration and sanctification, we would not mourn over sin, internal sin or external sin that we see each and every day. If we were not pure in heart, we would not be meek as God calls us to be meek. We would not be peacemakers according to God's definition of what a peacemaker is, and we definitely would not hunger and thirst for righteousness. And finally, we would not suffer being reviled, persecuted, and having people tell evil lies on us for Jesus' sake. We wouldn't do that. All of that takes someone who has been given a new heart, a heart that's been gutted of its selfishness and pride and have purity poured into it. The Bible tells us that God has written his laws upon our hearts. It's, nothing, it's not external laws written on tablets of stone because that wasn't working to change the heart. It was causing some type of externalism, some type of hypocrisy. And so as we look in, at God's definition of what a new heart is, I pray that we would reflect, that we would pause and reflect and ask ourselves, do I have one of those? I go to church, I pray, but do I have one of those? A pure heart. My title for the sermon is A Pure Heart is a Redeemed Heart. A pure heart is a redeemed heart. And I've broken it into two points. Point number one is the pure have received Jesus. And point number two is Jesus will receive the pure. Follow along. As I read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, once again, it's page 809 in your pew Bibles. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let us go before God in prayer. Father, I thank you for this moment. I thank you for this day. This is the, this is the Lord's day, a gracious day that you have given us to, to reflect on your goodness, to worship before you, to, to honor you as you deserve to be honored, Lord God. I pray that the words that come forth this morning will be all your words. I pray that what is taught will change hearts, Lord God, to draw us closer to you. And those who don't know you, Father, I pray that uh, your spirit would, would, would dwell within them, that you would break the darkness with the wonderful light of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Point number one, the pure have received Jesus. Purity of heart has two distinct but related senses in Scripture. First, it's the, the inner moral holiness that is the opposite of, of external piety. Like, like the Old Testament prophets, they spoke out against this consistently. They, they spoke out against those who were ritualistic, mere ritualistic observers of the law, especially laws of sacrifice and circumcision. God desired those who honored the covenants with an obedient heart that flowed from love, from sincerity, from truth, from compassion. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16, Moses told Israel to circumcise the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. The prophet Jeremiah said, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. And righteousness from the God of our salvation. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, and its inhabitants of Ju and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then in Psalm chapter 24, verses 3 to 5, King David asked the people a question. He asked them, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And the answer, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The Pharisees who were listening close to, to Jesus' every word, wondering, who is this? Could he be the promised Messiah? Ah, I don't think so. Maybe he's, maybe he's a prophet or something like that, right? But they call themselves followers of the law and the prophets. But they must have missed the part where you're supposed to follow the law through love. That's the way God gave the law, through love. We know we have people in our lives who we try to uh, uh, tell them Jesus is the answer. We try to share with them the word of God. And they're like, no, it's too restrictive. The Bible is, 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 is too many laws and too many rules. And you tell them, well, or you ask them, what, what rules are hurtful? Is it the rule about thou shalt not steal? Is that a problem for you? How about you shall not covet your neighbor's wife? Is that evil? How about murder? Which, which one, stop me when you, we, we get there, which one is grievous to you? Out of love, God gave us the law so that we can dwell with one another in peace, in harmony. We could stop hurting one another. The one who comes to God must have pure, a pure heart and clean hands. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 to 5, Jesus told the crowds and his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They did this because they were legalists. They were legalists. And what the legalist does is he isolates the law from the God who gave the law. The legalists, whether male or female, uh, they do not seek to honor Christ as much as they seek to receive honor from men. 
right? It's devoid of any personal relationship, personal relationship with God and personal relationship with those whom they are supposed to be guiding to Christ. There's no love, joy, passion, or compassion. It's just a rote mechanical form of law-keeping that we call, once again, externalism. Externalism. The legalist focuses only on obeying bare rules. For instance, suppose a person loves driving the minimum speed on the highway. They're so concerned with breaking the law on the other side that they forget if they go 39, they're breaking the law. However, for the legalist mind, it does not matter the weather conditions. He must keep the law so that if he's driving somewhere around North Carolina, Georgia, South Carolina even, and Florida, and you get those torrential rains. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about, where everything is white. You can see nothing past your front bumper. The person who says, I must keep the law, is actually a danger to everybody else. The legalist becomes a danger when there is no common sense to say, wait a minute, how can I love the people around me? Slow down. Slow down. Out of love, we are to say, okay, does it make sense that I am sticking to this strict, rigid, non-loving way that I may appear righteous, that I may appear that I am actually better than this one who is not keeping the law. We have to be careful, and I don't want you to separate yourself so far that you look at it as, oh, wow, look at them. Think about yourself many times. As I prepare this, I have to think about myself over and over and over. How am I loving my wife? Is it about rules? This is the time we're supposed to go to bed. You know my wife, she's not going for that. You, this, you have to do this. I don't care who you promised a cake to. She, no, I might get cut. I, I can't say nothing like that because, number one, it doesn't honor God. And number two, I'm not loving my wife. I'm just throwing rules at her. I'm just trying to say, well, I, I'm holy and you're not. We would never verbalize that. But that's what we're actually saying when we're we're telling people and we're actually talking down to them in that way. We have to be careful, right? Um, The type of legalism that the Pharisees uh, showed came out many times as Jesus would heal someone and they would find any uh, wrong they could. It's the Sabbath day. Who healed you? Who told you to carry your mat? Think about this, 38 years with an infirmity, 38 years. They didn't care. You're breaking the law. Who did this? Who gave you your sight? Born blind, they didn't care. You have to tell us, don't give this man any credit. Praise Moses, follow Moses. We know where Moses comes from, but this guy we don't know. And the blind man said, what? Nobody has ever done what he has done, and you don't know where he's from? Be careful that we do not fall into that type of legalism. So by the time we get to Matthew chapter 23, the Pharisees will have seen enough to know that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Yet they continue to harden their hearts. 
So Jesus condemns them severely with a series of woe statements. And in these woe statements, we also find out a lot about the Pharisees, right? For instance, in verse 15 of Matthew 23, Jesus told them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell, Gehenna, as yourselves. If we were to watch them and to, to see them spend time, their resources, right, uh, the energy to travel far and wide to, to get someone to, to worship Yahweh, we would say, wow, I want to be like them. I, 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 it's amazing that they, 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 they're so loving, right, as if they really had pure hearts. But Jesus, who knows all men, told them, what you're doing once you get them is you're making them twice as much uh, the sinner that you are. Twice as much a child of hell because one, uh, the, the hypocrisy that they learned from you or will learn from you condemns them. And two, they were still pagan in my sight. Then in verse 23 of Matthew 23, Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And you know what they did is if they had a hundred seeds, they would separate ten and say, Lord, this is yours. But if it was about faithfulness, they were unfaithful. Justice, they were corrupt. Mercy, they couldn't identify it. They were concerned about the incidentals and the externals. That's why Jesus would go on to say in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, he says in verse 27, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and, and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus said, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean also. And if he was speaking of physical cups and plates, he would be wrong. But he was speaking about people. He was speaking about men and, 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 and women. And his statement couldn't be more factual. If the heart of a person is changed, that person is changed. In the Beatitudes, Jesus did not say, blessed are the pure in language, or blessed are the pure who never gossip or slander. And someone may ask, well, what's the difference? They're doing the right thing. Well, let's say you ask somebody very politely, can you please stop cursing so much? It's, it's, you're killing me with your language. And to your surprise, they politely agree and say, you know what? I will. I will stop cursing, in your presence at least, right? 
And, and, and over the next few encounters, not one curse. And you're rejoicing. Wow, the conversations are great. However, what if you could pull out your, what if you pull out your phone and you went on your thoughts app? That's an app where you can touch a person's name. And you can find out their thoughts. You can find out what exactly they're thinking. And so you see their name and you click on it. Because you want to hear what they're thinking, right? right? You're, you're so feeling so good. Their language has been cleaned up. And as you listen to their thoughts, you're horrified. You're horrified. Because ever since that date that you clicked in also, it's a great app, by the way. Ever since that date, it's a great app on the surface. You don't want that app. You click on that name and that date, and you find out ever since that day, they've been cursing you in their mind. They've been cursing you, and they hate you for taking away this freedom of expression. And they say, how dare they? What? And your heart is sinking. The more you listen to this, this, this person just curse at you and, and in their mind. And then you find out as you move further along the timeline that they're telling everybody that you are a self-righteous hypocrite, a maniac who has lost his mind, and you just cut it off. You can't take it, and you're shocked. But know what? You know what? God is not shocked. In John chapter 2, after Jesus did many miracles, the people wanted to exalt him and lift him up. But he said, no. Why? Because the word says he knew what was in every man. He knew what was in every man. And so God provides the remedy that we need, a new heart. A new heart. Blessed of a pure in heart. It's not about trying to clean up your act on the outside. That doesn't cut it. And we say, okay. Okay. I need, I need more than that, Pastor Mike. You're telling me what I need, but you're not, you're not telling me how I can receive one, right? That's coming up. But to delve further into where we are in our lives and trying to clean up externally. Let's say some, by some miracle, we'll call it God and the power of the Holy Spirit, that you stop watching pornography, and it's amazing. You, you've tried for so long, but you have finally stopped. Praise God. Praise God. But if your actions that appear to be pure are covering up the fact that your heart is still filled with lust and you can't remove the images out of your mind, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. But I, I will give you encouragement don't stop pursuing holiness. Don't stop pursuing holiness. We want that road to Damascus experience, but I want to read a couple of passages for you that give us some encouragement. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. Here's what the Apostle Paul said, right? Uh, beginning in verse 12 and ending in verse, ending in verse 14, he says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why, Paul? Why do you press on to make it your own? Because Jesus has made me his own. That's where we need to get to. That's the beginning of our pursuit of sanctification. Recognizing whose you are. Who you belong to. 
He goes on. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He also gave us great encouragement in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verses 24 to 27, and he uses a couple of sports analogies, which they would have been uh, familiar with between the Olympics and the Isthmus Games. They would have recognized what Paul was speaking of. So those who were dozing would have uh, awakened when this letter was being read once he hit uh, uh, the subject of sports. And he says, do you know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And what do they do it for? One of those wreaths made of leaf that would go away and wrinkle up and, 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 be, and, and perish. But we do it for an imperishable wreath, one that will never go away, eternal, stored up in, heavens for, in the heavens for us. Right. And Paul says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. When I run, I have a goal. There's an end line. I am going this way. Something may be shiny over here. The winds of culture may be blowing that way. But I see the finish line and I am headed for that. And I do not box as one beating the air. I want to hit the speed bag. I want to hit the target. I want to honor God with my life. Verse 27. Here's what he does. I discipline my body. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Disqualified. What is he saying? What is he saying? Adakamos. What is he saying? Adakamos meaning rejected or unfit for ministry. Rejected or unfit for ministry. Paul did not want to be rejected or seen as unfit to lead the people as a preacher, as, a, as an apostle, as a missionary, as a church planter. So he disciplined his body to keep it under control. Does this mean he was perfect? No, not even close to it. We already saw his, or see his testimony in Romans chapter 7. The things I do, I don't want to do. The things I don't do, you know, I, I want to do. I want to honor God with my life. Oh, wretched man am I. Who will deliver me from this body of sin, right? And we, sometimes we, we, we stop. We stop. And sometimes we, we justify ourselves from this chapter. But there's a problem with that. Because Romans 8 tells you you cannot stop there feeling justified in your sin. Oh, I can't help it. This is who I am. I'm going to wait for God to take it from me. No, you discipline your body to bring it, King James, under subjection. To keep in the will of God. Nobody's perfect. So we press on. Forgetting those things that are behind. And many think, well, I've been doing this for 30 years. I can't stop. Tomorrow's a new day. Today is a new day. From this point forward, and we know this from other things in our lives that we have stopped. We have been doing other things for a long time, but we are always growing. We are always moving forward. God has given us life, and we grow in maturity. We learn from our, from our mistakes. We learn from the consequences of our sin. We learn the separation that, sin, that our sin has brought is not where God would have us to be. God has called us to be a family, a unity. And what sin will do is it will cause in you this feeling, I need to separate. 
I need to isolate because I'm not worthy. Well, God agrees with you. But in grace, that's what grace is all about. I make you worthy. We cannot stay in that same place. I'm not worthy, so I, I, I'm just going to sit here. I'll listen, I'll listen to the sermon, but I'm not worthy to do anything. No, that's self-pity and false humility. The pure in heart. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I'm going to, I'm going to pick it up again. I'm going to put some weight behind it uh, later. Is, is are those who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's not working yourself up to receive a pure heart. It's what God has done and placed in you. It only comes from God. So the Apostle Paul moves from that place where I don't do what I want to do to Romans 8. And he lets us know in verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. So I can't stay there. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And that's what we want. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And if you don't get anything else from today, highlight Romans 8, 8 in your Bible. Remember it. Keep it with you. It says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is simple. It's straight, succinct, whatever you want to call it. That's the summary. It doesn't matter what you do on Sunday morning if you're living hellish throughout the week. You cannot please God if you are in the flesh. Let me define that. We all sin. But if I am conquered and a slave to this sin, this one, pride, greed, lawlessness, lust, fill in the blank, covetousness. If this one has my heart, I have not been set free. So Sunday mornings, I try to, to work, serve uh, preach, sweep, hand out programs, feed people, whatever. You cannot please God in sin, swimming in sin. Not as a person who is still human and sinning. There is a difference. There is a difference. We all sin, but we cannot be mastered by this particular sin that is causing damage within, causing our fellowship to, to feel shallow. And we know this. We read the word and there's nothing. There's no impact. People pray for us and we're daydreaming. The thing about it is God says, just turn around. Just turn around. That's all. And our worldly thinking, what we'll do sometimes is we'll uh, think it's like the world does. Well, you sinned against me. You have to make it up. And it's going to take a long time. God says, just turn. Right? It's, it's 11.50. 11.50 in 10 seconds. Turn. And God says, here I am. Prodigal son, remember. Here I am. When his son came to his senses, he turned. I'm going to my father. Come. That's encouragement. That's encouragement. No matter where you are, turn. Come. That's it. That's all. Not as hard as it seems. Like I said, first we need a heart that's pure. Externally, it's bounced back and forth, in and out, in and out, over and over, no progress. The new heart says, okay, slower bounces, longer bounces, no bounces, pride, bounce again. Be careful, walk humbly, delivered, 
walk humbly. Walk humbly. That's all we have to do. God says, come to me. I will exalt you. One of the greatest lessons we can learn concerning this on humility and coming to God the right way, understanding this, 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 this paradox in our mind is that God is totally sovereign over salvation, but man has a responsibility to turn to God. Don't get a headache trying to figure that one out, but I like what we learn from Luke chapter 18. If you will, please turn there uh, with me. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 877. Luke 18, beginning at verse 9, ending at verse 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, Jesus says, standing far off, will not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This man didn't give a a pretty prayer, one of those long pretty prayers that tickles the ears of men. It doesn't tickle God's ears. This man prayed and he went right right to it. He got got right to it, his need. He beat his breast out of anguish and prayed, God have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I am undone. Lord God, I, 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 I can't even lift my head up to you. Have mercy on me. This was done from a pure heart. Right? How do we know that he was justified? Because only the justified have a pure heart. Jesus said he went home justified. He was declared righteous by the Son of God himself. Psalm chapter 51 and verse 17 says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart Heart God will not despise. David is letting us know what happened in Luke 18. The man came to him with a, a contrite. Contrite. In the original, it, it, it means crushed. Crushed. This, this, is, this is what we need before God. A crushed heart. Uh, broken, of course, means to break, but it goes further than that. It means to, to, to break in pieces. In pieces. So you have someone who has a heart that is broken in pieces and crushed. That comes before God with nothing. Nothing. I have nothing to offer my God. This is what, 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 what Abraham had. The Lord, the Lord says, Abraham, take your son, 
your only son. And in that dialogue, God says your only son three times to hit it home. He's it. But I want you to take him, and I want you to take him to the land of Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him for me. Here's what a heart that is broken in pieces and crushed does. Whatever you want, Lord. Isaac, let's go. That's a crushed heart. Because everything he has belongs to God in the first place. And Hebrews 11 tells us a little secret that Abraham knew that God was able to raise him up again if he did kill him. That's faith. That's incredible, incredible faith. And we know it wasn't external. Nobody can just do something like that externally. Right? Right? If you have not been born again, your heart is not pure in the eyes of God. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter how many people you have helped. If you are not born again, you cannot please God in the flesh. You're saying, God, I don't need you. I can do it my way. If you believe you're in the kingdom and you come out to church and you hold fast to, to church creeds and covenants, yet you neglect love, mercy, kindness, care, compassion, your heart may not be pure in God's eyes. And the day is coming when the Lord will separate the weak from the tears. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said he's going to let them grow together until the time of harvest. And then when the time of harvest comes, he's going to send out the reapers slash angels. And he's going to gather the tears and bundle them and burn them. But the wheat, he's going to gather into his barn. The wheat representing the born again children of God, not on their own merit, because they trusted in the righteousness of Christ will see God. Jesus Christ is on the throne. Revelation 20, 11 to 15, Matthew 25, 31 to the end. Jesus Christ, the one that has been rejected by the unbeliever, will be their judge. And if you have to start explaining yourself, you're in trouble already. Those who place all their faith in Jesus Christ alone are covered their sins have been wiped away so that when they stand before the Lord and if he, I'm just using earthly illustrations, if he had to look at their list of sins, it's been cleansed. There are no, nothing to bring any charges against that person. All because of the blood of Christ. The righteous shall shine like the sun. And that brings us to point number two. Jesus will receive the pure. When Jesus said the pure in heart shall see God, he didn't mean that the impure in heart will not see God. They will see him on judgment day. When they will have to give an account for their lives, they will be found guilty and banished from the presence of the Lord for all eternity. That's why we cry out to God for our loved ones. That's why we share the gospel with those we care for. We know that day is coming. We know it's not going to be pleasant for them, and that is an understatement. Why can they not remain in God's presence? Because God is holy, God is pure, and He cannot endure with sin for long. For those of us who have ridden the subway system, and someone who has been living on the streets comes in with their stuff, you know the stench 
that comes where you cannot even breathe. You, you, your eyes water, and when the doors open, everybody gets out and finds another car. When someone goes before the Lord Almighty in his purity, who has not been covered by the righteousness of Christ, that stench is much worse than any subway car. God cannot leave them in heaven. They would affect the entire realm, the entire kingdom. They cannot stay there. Jesus illustrated this in the parable, in a parable in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. And once again, I'll ask you to turn with me there briefly. Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14, Pew Bible 827. And again, Jesus spoke to them in, in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the, king, when, the, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no what? Wedding garments. No wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Notice, all the guests were invited and then gathered. Which means we love him because he first loved us. He showed us, he made the first move, and he called us with an effectual calling, and we came, right? But however, in the parable, which we're not going to hold every nut and bolt uh, tight to theology, correct, proper, but the big picture is God made the first move. The good and the bad were gathered from the roads. But once they're inside the wedding hall, almost, almost all of them are wearing the proper garments. Where did the proper garments come from? The king himself. The king himself. They had no time to get any clothing or, 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 or go shopping or whatever, but they're there and they have the proper garments except for one man. The one man. And God was not going to leave him in that condition. Here's what happens. He purposely rejected the king's 
provisions. Everybody else has it, but this man does not have what he needs. Get the picture. He's speaking specifically to the chief priests and the Pharisees. In this audience, chief priests, Pharisees, full of righteousness. We don't want Christ's righteousness. He's speaking to them in this parable. Right. This person is a picture of someone who is so proud and arrogant that they believe they'll be accepted on their own merits by what they think is right. And there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 14, verses 12 to 13. His rejection of the king's uh, provision was an act of rebelliousness, an act of wickedness and total disrespect. We never want to be that. We never want to be that. We never want to be those who profess to be Christians, especially who belong in the kingdom, yet spurn the free gift, which brings the free garment of righteousness. Isaiah put it this way. He said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me. God has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isaiah 61, verse 10. And as we're going through uh, Isaiah on Sunday mornings, you're invited, 10 a.m., we're seeing that the people of God were not received because they were righteous people. Far from it. They were idol worshippers. And God dealt with them appropriately. But God still promises deliverance. Deliverance as they need to turn. And there will be a people who turn. If anyone is to be received by God at any time, whether now on earth or someday in heaven, he or she must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's why we can go before him in prayer. That's why he receives our, 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 our cries to him because we have been adopted into his family. We have been covered in the righteousness of Christ and we have a home with him as his children even now. For those who have never been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, they are also like someone who may have a robe, but it's filthy. Their garments are stained. They need to have them washed and made right, made white by the blood of the Lamb. One last place I'll ask you to turn. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, beginning at verse 9 till the end. Page 1032 in your pew Bible. John is given this vision of all the believers standing before the throne of God. It's the day that all of us should be yearning for. It's the day that we keep in our hearts and our minds whenever life gets hard and, and, and we're thrown a vicious curve. This is the day that we're looking forward to. This is the day that the martyrs thought of as they were about to be burned or thrown to the lions or thrown in prison. This is the day. In verse 9 through 17 of Revelation chapter 7, we read, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? John said to him, Sir, you know, come on. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They came out of the great tribulation victorious because they trusted in Jesus alone and were covered in the righteousness of Christ not their own righteousness. I like the way Spurgeon spoke on this, right? Uh, and he uses, this, he uses a story, a great story, I think. Uh, he tells of two men who were in the boat near the falls of Niagara, and the boat turned over. The boat flipped over. And as these men are being carried downstream by the current headed for certain doom, a group of people on the side throw out a rope. And they keep throwing out the rope as the people are coming. They, they need the rope to be right there on time when the people come by. And astonishingly, both men grab the rope. And as the first one is pulling and pulling, the current is hard, but he's pulling and pulling. The second man, he's, he's waiting for the first man, but he gets impatient. And he looks and he sees this big log floating by. And he lets go of the rope and he grabs the log. And he sits on top of the log. And he feels good. However, as he's looking at the man and he's noticing that he finally made it to the shore, he turns his head and the cliff is right there. And he goes over the cliff. What happened? He let go of the only union to the shore. He grabbed something that seemed to be safe, but there was no connection. There was nothing to, to keep him tied to the shore. We have to have a union with Christ to be saved. It doesn't matter how great of works you do. It will end in destruction. You have to have a group of people encouraging you, church, encouraging you, prayer, encouraging you, Bible study, encouraging you, call through the week, encouraging you. We need you. Hold on. Because God is holding on to you. Don't ever say that, 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 I can't do it. God said, I already know. Trust me. I will do it. I'm going to get you safely to the shore. Trust me. Look to me. You shall see me. Trust me. So many scriptures tell us 
that we will see God. The Apostle John, no longer a, a, a young lad running behind Peter to the tomb and the silent one observing everything, but he's an old man now. And he's tired of those Gnostics swaying the word of God and swaying people and having thinking they have this deeper hidden knowledge. And John doesn't have time to play. He's old. He's been suffering. And he's seen things that people shouldn't see. And he says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Beloved, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus has or hopes in him does what? Purifies himself as he is pure, which means the pure in heart shall see God. Jesus shall receive the pure. In Revelation, once again, John, as he's describing the new Jerusalem, he wrote, no longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, which means the pure in heart shall see God. At the age of 31, I found out that someone was actually watching me. He was watching me. It was the God of the universe whose eyes never left me. It was the God of the universe who, who, who formed me while in my mother's womb and never took his eyes off of me. According to Psalm 139, his thoughts towards me are more than the sand on the seashore. He never left me. He was watching me. And of course, this would change my behavior. As I looked at the word of God and I continued to grow and see that he has a place for me. His son promised he's going to prepare this place for me and he shall receive me and I shall see his face. It alters one's life. Recognizing that God has you. God has you. He formed you before everybody, anybody ever saw you. Before the sonogram could make you out. Who you were, what you were. God says, I was there. And I've always been there. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. I pray for the unsaved. I pray that if you're here and you don't know him as Savior, cry out. Beat your breast. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray. Father, when Jesus said we must be born again, he was letting us know we must be born from above. If anyone is to be born again, you, Lord, must first grant them the right to become your child. And you will have mercy on whom you will have mercy. We bow down to your sovereignty, Lord. I pray you would have mercy and compassion many, even in our midst. I can only pray that those who don't know your son will seek him. This way, we all shall see him together. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.